You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. We've got a really good show today. I want to talk a little bit about the fact that all of the white coats are not the same. When we look at doctors, we tend to see white coats. And for most lay people, when you look at a doctor, you think to yourself that uh, they're similar. You think when you see one doctor, they sort of know the same things as another doctor. And the reality is that, that couldn't be any further from the truth. Doctors are not the same. And we're going to talk a little bit about why that is important and why it is so important that we preserve a free market medicine healthcare system and avoid a one-size-fits-all, top-down, government-run, socialized medicine uh, medical policy uh, that is being advocated by a lot of people right now. And what I want to try to do is give you a little bit of inside baseball observation from the perspective of somebody like me who's been on the inside, who knows uh, what we're talking about here and kind of help you see why it's just so important that you demand to keep your rights uh, to choose your own doctor. Now, we've talked about it on this show before that uh, it took me five tries to get accepted to medical school. So I finished uh, college. I applied to medical school. Uh, I didn't get in. I ended up having a... um, overcome a reading disability that I actually learned about uh, after I graduated college, so it was really late in life. Uh, I had to learn how to read again. I took multiple medical college admissions tests. I ended up going back to grad school, and eventually, on my fifth try, I was accepted to medical school. And the journey for me to to get into medical school was so long and so painful in many ways and so hard that I had this belief, I was projecting about what it was going to look like when I got there, and my image of the people that were in this medical school class were just the greatest people on the face of the earth, the smartest, uh, most noble, uh, most generous, most caring people that you could ever imagine. And when I got there, what I realized was I probably wouldn't let 60% of these people touch me or my family with a 10-foot pole. And the reason is we're all very, very different. We have different aptitudes. We have different personality types. We have different interests. We have different motivations. And all of these things affect what turns out to be your doctor. Um. I talk to my wife all the time about going to see an OBGYN, and she says I would never go see a male OBGYN because a male simply cannot understand what it's like to be a woman and have those issues. And I completely understand that. Uh, nothing against male doctors or male OBGYNs, and I'm sure some out there are amazing at their job. It's just for certain people, like my wife, a man just won't do in that situation, and there's nothing wrong with that. Now, when I got to medical school, I uh, was quickly thrown into the crucible. And I'll often reminisce talking to my kids about what medical school was like. Sometimes I'm getting to that age now where I might reminisce a little bit about being young. And my thought process will always take me to, well, if I go back to that age, then I'll have to go to medical school again. And that's completely out of the question. I could never do it again. And so I'm happy being the age that I am now because 
there's just nothing that could compel me to go through that miserable experience again. Now, I love medicine, but medical school was rough because I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And we understand when we get to medical school, students, that uh, in order to be guaranteed to get the uh, or as close to guaranteed as you could imagine to get the specialty you want, uh, you need to get good grades. And there's certain um, disciplines that we consider the holy grails. That's what we used to refer to them in medical school. So orthopedics at the time, I'm not sure what it is these days. It's probably similar. But at the time that I was in medical school, orthopedics was the number one residency that everybody wanted to do because it's fun uh, and it's, it's, it's got a lot of qualities that draw people to it. And so in order to get into orthopedic surgery, because it was so competitive, you had to be at the top of your class. And we all know I was not really designed to be at the top of an academic class. And so I had to make up for my deficits in reading skill and that sort of stuff with hard work. And that's what made my life so difficult. I um, I basically studied, you know, between four hours and 12 hours a day, sometimes more, every single day except for 12 days in four years. And I'm not here to have a a pity party for me. I'm just saying it was very difficult. And in order for me to be compelled to do the work it was necessary to learn that material and to compete, there had to be some sort of reward at the end of it. Meaning, um, in my case, I wanted to be my own boss. I wanted to have my own practice. Um, I wanted to make a certain amount of money. and all of these things were driving forces that compelled me to do uh, do the best that I could. And I can remember while I was in medical school, I'd often say to myself, you know, in pain and praying to God, why, you know, why do we have to know this material in such detail? It's so dumb. You're, you know, in many cases, you're making me memorize the equivalent of a phone book. And, um, you know, why do I have to know how to draw all the amino acids and biochemistry? I mean, who uses that information? And there's some wisdom behind this because even though I don't recall the exact details of everything that I learned in medical school, I have a perspective of what's out there. And that came about from a lot of hard work. And let me just give you an example of this. When my uh, wife was pregnant with our first child, well, I guess after we delivered our first child, we came home from the hospital right after the baby was born. And, of you know, we were having that experience that new parents often do with I did not realize how much they didn't sleep when we were at the hospital and we would hand the baby off to the nurses at night. And my wife and I would go to sleep when we came home. Obviously, there was nobody to hand the baby off to. And our first child didn't really sleep for a while. And so. There was a lot of crying. There was a lot of fatigue involved, all of the things that uh, parents all go through. And one day uh, we fed my baby and she immediately started vomiting up clots of blood. And I looked at her and I thought to myself, what is going on? And I'm, you know, I'm an orthopedic surgeon at the time and I, you know, hadn't done OBGYN in a long time, but I had a perspective there. And even though I didn't understand everything that was going on, I didn't understand babies, you know, as well as a pediatrician might or a neonatal care professional, I knew enough to look at my wife and immediately it popped into my head that it was her. Her nipples were getting raw from the um, 
you know, from the baby's suckling. And she was bleeding, and it was getting into my daughter's uh, stomach. And we know, well, doctors know that blood in the stomach is very irritating, and it causes uh, vomiting. And I just remember thinking that it took me just one second to sort of look at my baby, look at my wife, think about it for a second. And even though I didn't know all the details, I had this perspective that told me it was not my baby having a problem. It was my wife, and it was her nipples. And sure enough, that's what the problem was. And it's just an important point to know that in order to be a a good doctor, you have to have knowledge and experience. And so when I was in medical school, I started to learn all of the different kinds of personality types that we had there. And typically your your ex-athletes kind of gravitate. And of course, this is a very general generalized speaking, but you know your, your athletes tended to gravitate towards orthopedic surgery. You had sort of your more cerebral students that were um, uh, also surgically minded that would go into um, neurosurgery or perhaps uh, ear, nose, and throat surgery. Um, and then you had people that were good with kids that would go into pediatrics. Um, and there were all these different personality types that would gravitate people towards certain specialties, and it made us all very different. The other thing uh, I realized was that we had some broken people in our medical school class, just like we do in all cross-sections of life. And I remember there was one student who was in his early 20s as as we're getting into medical school, and sadly, he became afflicted with severe schizophrenia. And it started really affecting him as we got into the first and second year. And I remember by the time uh, we were in our second year, he was just so, um, so ill from his schizophrenia that he really couldn't function as a doctor. And he was eventually pulled out as a class now or pulled out of the class. Now, uh there were also a lot of people that had that was a very severe situation but we also had people that had personality defects that we all see in our offices people with you know a bit of a narcissistic personality disorder or um um you know all different kind of personality types that um make us who we are as human beings and i'm not um i'm not uh separated from this you know i have my own issues Uh, that make it so that I am not the right doctor for every person out there. And the the importance of this is to encourage people to understand that you need control of your health care. You cannot receive quality medical care from a top-down, government-run, one-size-fits-all system. And the reason is we're all very different. And, you know, Friedrich Hayek... Uh, the great author that wrote the book The Road to Serfdom talked about the fact that the reason that socialism doesn't work is because we have millions and millions and millions of people out there with millions and millions of wants, needs, desires, ideas, and there's no person or group of people who could possibly consider all of those issues and then provide goods and services to meet all of those issues. And that's why the free market works so well is because people are able to attend to all of the individual needs and it allows allows individuals to seek out the things that are important to them. And the market will always produce those things in the correct number uh, and distribution uh, in a way that no other system can. And medicine 
is perhaps one of the most important commodities we have, our health care. Um, I remember uh, when um, I was in medical school, we had a class called Death and Dying. And uh, it was a situation where they were trying to get us to think through uh, problems surrounding death and dying. It, it has obviously a major impact on patients who are dying of cancer and other diseases and their family members as well. And it takes really, really special doctors to to care for those patients. And they have talents that I do not possess. And uh, I can remember one time there was a man who got up there and it was a two-hour lecture. They all were long like that. And he was telling us the story of the death of his 10-year-old son. And he got up there and started talking about how his son was diagnosed with cancer, um, what it was like to have to talk to his son about it, what it was like to have to go through uh, treatment, what it was like on the family, how the, he, the father and his wife devoted so much extra time and energy to their child, their 10-year-old son with cancer, that it created neglect situations for the other kids in the house, and that created issues. And um, all the while, there was a doctor who was standing there, his doctor, standing behind him. And this man would talk about how the doctor spoke to him, the words that he used, and the, um, the comfort that he gave, and the way that he was there. And we were learning about this by listening to this man talk about it. And again, this is going on for like two hours, and it was really brutal. I'm getting goose flesh even just thinking about it now. It was so moving. And the father then started talking about when they got to the point where they knew there was nothing else that that they could do, that this 10-year-old boy was going to die. And um, the father started talking about some of the conversations that he had with this with his son. And... Um, you know, he talked about his son asking things like, what is sex like? And, you know, what are all these experiences that I'm never going to have in life? What are they like? And and then his father goes, and then we talked about something that I'm not going to share with you that's just between me and my son. And, you know, at this point, the entire auditorium is crying. Um, it was really, really powerful. And I'm not doing it justice right now. But eventually the boy died. And the father said that he and his family got on with their lives. And about six months into it, the father started to say to himself, I'm forgetting things about my son. And it really affected him. And and he was very upset about the fact that he was forgetting his 10-year-old son six months later. And so he called the doctor and he said, I am so afraid that I'm going to forget my son. And this doctor went, and throughout the the man telling the story of his son, he kept talking about the fact that this 10-year-old boy loved to play with frogs, and he was always sort of out in the woods with the creek, at the creek, and, and playing with frogs, and, and uh, you know, he would get little shoeboxes and create little homes for frogs, and he was just, he was really into it. And... Um, the man then told about, after he had this conversation with their doctor, how the doctor went and got a tie with a Norman Rockwell image of a boy holding a frog wearing overalls. And it, 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 he brought this tie to the man's office, and he left it there with a note saying, 
your son had a great impact on my life, and I will never forget your son. And when, when he told this part of the story, I mean, the entire auditorium burst into tears. I mean, everybody was already crying, but it was, it was almost unbearable to see that. And I just remember thinking, what a talent, what an ability that this one doctor had to be able to know what to say in those situations. And listen, as an orthopedic surgeon, it doesn't happen often, but I've had and am having issues with um, patients and family members who are going through uh, circumstances like this. And really, there's nothing that you can be trained to do to help you with this situation. You know what I mean? There's just nothing to say, but certain people have this talent. Now, medicine is like that across the board, and there are infinite numbers uh, or or infinite types of skills and abilities that different doctors have to be able to provide you with care, and it's constantly expanding. And uh, I once had it presented to me by a mentor who uh, explained to me that there are things that I know about how to treat patients that are not going to appear in textbooks for 30 years, because... The practice of medicine involves a lifetime of reading, experience, classes, people you talk to, different mentors you have, um, different experiences you have with particular treatment modalities. All of these things sort of play into your perception, your ability to diagnose, your ability to care, your ability to present your patients with options so that they can decide what sort of uh, care is most important to them. Um, And it's very important for people to understand that in medicine, we don't really have a cookbook mentality. There isn't one answer to to any question. And it's actually more common uh, for you to go see 10 different doctors for a complicated problem and get 10 different answers, none of which are wrong. They're just all from a different perspective, and they may be more correct for one patient than another. But these different options don't really exist when we have socialized medicine and a one-size-fits-all top-down medical system. And the reason is, is because who's manning that system? Who's the person who's up at the top that's making the decisions about what we do and what we don't do in healthcare? They can't possibly know everything. They certainly can't know everything across across all the different medicines uh, or all the different disciplines of uh, orthopedic surgery or medicine or pediatrics or OBGYN or psychiatry, immunology. There's so much information out there. It's not possible for any one person or any group of people to know about these things. And that's why it's impossible. I mean, that's why it's so important for patients to be able to seek out their own doctor and make their own decisions based on their unique situation uh, and a doctor who who meets those needs. Now, one of the things that I've learned in practicing medicine for a long time is is that, um, and it's not just medicine, it's other things too, where in order to get us to behave in a certain way, the powers that be will try and create a noble reason. And let's just talk about climate change. the reality of climate change is they want to be able to tax us and implement regulations that affect business and trade and travel and all kinds of things. And if they just told us they want to do it because they're making business deals, we'd be, you know, we don't want to do it. So what they do is they try to convince us that they're saving the planet and that by our 
behaving as human beings and engaging in our daily lives that somehow we're causing damage to the planet. And with enough time and enough, um, let's just call it what it is, propaganda, people eventually believe that their behaviors are damaging the planet because most of us don't want to do that. And it makes it easier for them to control us. Well, the same thing happens in healthcare. They always talk about the poor. They always talk about the children. They always talk about the needy as if somehow a government-run healthcare system is going to deliver care to those people. And the fact of the matter is that does not happen. And what we know is a government-run system is the worst system for delivering health care. It actually denies care uh, more than any other system. And we see it uh, in other places where they have socialized medicine systems like the United Kingdom, like Canada. We've talked about it many times on this show. And uh, the hospital systems uh, tend to implement regulations that affect a doctor's ability to implement care um, through regulation. Now, when I first began my career, the majority of physicians were independent. They were not employed by hospital systems. And over time, as government penetration and control of healthcare increased, we've gotten to the point now where 53% of doctors are now employed by hospital systems. And because of the employment relationship of these doctors to the hospital systems, we have eroded our doctor-patient relationship, and we have created these perverse relationships where a doctor's fidelity is sometimes more aligned with the hospital system that employs them and not necessarily the patient that's in front of them. And we've talked about this. Um, There are now uh, government bodies that evaluate doctors and will uh, basically affect the doctor's reimbursement based on whether or not they readmit a patient within 30 days. And so what you do is you have a doctor who discharges a patient, and if that patient needs to be readmitted, that's going to be a ding on the doctor. And so the doctor is incentivized to prevent that patient from being admitted back to the hospital and oftentimes against um, the well-being of that patient. And there are a lot of these perverse relationships that are uh, set up with this new paradigm of this one-size-fits-all, top-down, government-run healthcare system. And nothing has illuminated this to me more than the experience we just had in the last year with the COVID uh, outbreak. And we're going to get into that a little bit to try and expose uh, how this system works and how it's not necessarily in your best interest. Now, um, I remember... um, being a young doctor and being very knowledgeable, meaning I, you know, I'm very close to my boards. I studied a lot. And I had a friend of mine who was a doctor before I got into medical school when I was working at the Lombardi Cancer Institute. And he and I used to spend time together and I would ask him questions about medical school because he was already a doctor and he was a cancer specialist. And I used to actually talk to him about being a doctor and how how is it how can you be a cancer doctor because from my world that's a tough one I, I just don't have the personality type where i could go into work every day and have to face people who are really dealing with life and death situations many of whom are losing their battle and um i, I would just be depressed all the time and it I, I don't i wouldn't be good at it and i asked him about it how do you do this and he says to me hey scott you ever play golf and i was like yeah i've played golf before and he goes 
one good shot is all you need to bring you back to the course. You can be slicing that ball into the water and into the woods and getting a terrible score, but you hit that one pure shot that just feels good. And he goes, that's all you need to come back to the course. And he goes, treating patients is like that for me. I get that one sweet shot and it really fills me up. And I just remember that stuck with me uh, my my whole life, that he had an ability and a personality that was a gift from God uh, and that we don't all have. And I certainly don't have that. Um, and thank God that we do. Um, I'm a, not only a doctor, I'm a patient too, and I need my doctors to meet my needs. And fortunately, I'm uh, more educated than people who are not doctors, so I know what I need and what I don't need. Now, there has always been a push my entire career, and I know that there's been a push from before I started, where we're trying – there are people who want socialized medicine, and there is always this push towards the expansion of government control. And in reality, our government controls our health care systems. We have documented on this show before, and maybe I'll go back and do another um, review of this, but you basically have hospital systems that function in big cities – um, and these hospital systems are largely funded by Medicare and Medicaid. And so these hospital systems will appeal to politicians to increase reimbursement for certain things that benefit the hospital through Medicare and Medicaid. And as that happens, the donations from the hospital systems and the employees at those hospital systems go back to those politicians to create this cycle. It's very similar to what we see with the teachers unions in the public school systems where the money goes from the teachers union to the politicians. The politicians do things uh, and pass regulations and rules and laws that are not necessarily in the best interest of the students, but benefit the teachers unions who then send their money back to these same politicians and we get this vicious cycle. Well, the same thing is happening in healthcare, and the COVID experience has really uh, demonstrated this to me uh, in a way that um, that I think makes it makes people really able to understand what's happening here. Now, one of the things that I learned. Um, through the practice of medicine was how a doctor's experience changes their perspective on how they see things. And the point I'm trying to make here is there's no way for a one-size-fits-all menu of healthcare. Now, the, pe- the proponents of socialized medicine want to tell you that there's a thing called best practices, and they want to tell you that a physician's assistant um, or a nurse practitioner is the same as a doctor, And they're not. They're all medical professionals. They all provide a service, but they're not the same. And they're constantly trying to get us to believe that they're the same, and they're not. The other thing is, when you have a doctor who's committed to you, uh, they behave differently than a doctor that's beholden to an employer. And I just can't emphasize this enough. And... um, there's also a difference in perspective with training. Somebody who comes out um, of training now is obviously exposed to more modern um, techniques in many cases, um, but they lack experience. And there's sort of a blend of knowledge and experience that goes towards creating a great doctor. And 
to what we call the art of medicine. I know most people have heard this phrase, you know, medicine is not necessarily a science, it's an art. And the reason is, is we take all of these um, facts, this data, experience, personal abilities, you know, what, what can I do? What can't I do? Uh, and puts it all together to help us develop treatment plans. Now, I remember one time we had a patient when I was in the trauma center, this guy got in a motorcycle accident. And it was basically as if somebody had taken a sander and sanded off the front of his knee. So the kneecap was gone and the thigh bone and the shin bone were kind of smooth like a sander there. And you could basically see everything and there was no soft tissue on the front of it. And my initial thought was, and everything else was fine. His leg, you know, his foot worked, the nerves were all intact. He, he, there was no compromise to the blood vessels. And so it seemed if we could just get that wound covered and get a knee replacement in there, he would be able to function. And so I went and started uh, presenting this case to to different doctors that I needed the joint guy the the plastic surgeon who would perform the flap to do the soft tissue coverage to sort of get all of this information together and then I went to go to one of the most knowledgeable doctors in my residency program that I knew and I asked him to come over to the hospital and take a look at this patient with me and I remember he came over and he looked at the same wound that I looked at. And, you know, I'm still in training, so I was a resident, but I was very knowledgeable. I'm very close to all my exams and my book reading and everything, but I didn't have the experience. And he took one look at the knee, and he just told me amputation above the knee. And he started explaining to me about the way the wound appeared, that soft tissue coverage would be very difficult and that it would be tough to be able to create range of motion in that knee, even if we were able to get it covered. There was a lack of health in the tissue that he could see with his years of experience that I could not see yet, where he said, it's just not healthy tissue. There's there's a disease about it that will make it impossible for a knee replacement to take in there and not get infected and cause a problem. And then he also talked about it would take so long. It would take years for this person to be able to recover. And then they would have a really poorly functioning knee. It probably wouldn't bend very well. They'd be in a lot of pain. And so after going through all of this recovery, they wouldn't have a very functional leg. And what he said is nowadays, uh, we have prosthetics that are so effective. I mean, you know, you're seeing people with above knee amputations that are surfing now. I mean, it's really amazing what technology has done. And he said, we'll go in and we'll amputate this this person's leg and they'll be back to work in six weeks. Um, and they'll be functional and and their pain will be better. And it was just, it was a different way of looking at things that was hard for me because my mind was just so... Um, I was so committed to, well, you know, nothing could be worse than an amputation above the knee. And the reality is uh, there are lots of things uh, that are worse than that. And you need perspective in order to do that. And there's no way for anybody to have had that perspective other than a doctor who has been in the trenches, who's had those experiences. There's no way an administration would be able to come in, an administrator who's not a doctor or maybe who is a doctor of a different kind, not an orthopedic surgeon, which is who our administrators are at these hospital systems. They wouldn't be able to make a very nuanced, erudite evaluation of the situation and be able to um, present a patient with options. And again, 
this is one of those situations where you could have multiple doctors that had multiple opinions about the same situation that were all valid, but required patient input into uh, what they wanted. I mean, there are some patients who are like, I have to go back to work in six weeks. I've had this experience myself. I got a family. I got to go to work. I want you to cut it off right now. And then you'll have other patients that'll say, I'll go through any number of years of therapy and surgery and pain. I'll do anything to keep my leg. Different people, and, and it's important that people have the ability to make those own judgments. And more importantly, it's important for people to understand that your hospital system is wholly incapable of making those decisions from an administrative point of view. And we are steadily moving into that situation where your doctor and the patient have very little input into what your medical care is. And these hospital systems and these government bureaucracies are the ones that are making your healthcare decisions. And it's important that you see how it's happening. And it's important that you understand why it's worth fighting for. Now, the other thing that I understood, or the other thing that I've learned over the years too, is not just in medicine, but in anything. You know, a lot of us will say, well, we need the government to uh, to look out for us, to make sure that big companies are not using dirty water, or, you know, they're not polluting and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, for some reason, we're all sort of conditioned to believe that the government, whatever that means, this nebulous entity, is somehow morally pure and willing to do the things that are best for the environment and best for the people. And the fact of the matter is, is government is populated by the same type of people I went to medical school with, meaning some good, some bad. I mean, when I was in medical school, there were people who would steal slides from the histology lab so that other students wouldn't be able to see those slides and they would have a competitive advantage on the test. You know, I'd get to the exam and I'd look at a slide and I'd be like, I've never seen this before. And the reason is, is because somebody in my class stole that slide so that people would not be able to see it. These are the things that exist in the real world. And this is the, these are the people that exist in our government as well. Not all, but enough. And the point I'm trying to make is the only person capable of looking out for your self-interests is you. There's nobody who knows what you know. There's nobody who feels what you feel. There's nobody who understands your vision of your life and what you want. There's nobody who understands your fears and things that you don't want. And I was just having this conversation with my daughter uh, yesterday about how important it is for you to have the ability to look out for yourself and to care for yourself because you're the only person that knows you. Even your father doesn't know the things that are important to you uh, in a way that you do. And I talked to her about it. I said, listen, if daddy was in control of everything, you'd still be playing softball because I thought it was good for you. I thought you learned a lot. You were good at the sport, uh, but she she didn't like it. And so it made it easy for her to see, yeah, if you'd have been in control of everything, I'd still be playing softball. And I hated softball. And because we let her make her own decisions, um, she's not playing softball anymore. Now, that's obviously a smaller issue. Well, maybe not so small, but it's very important to understand that the stakes are highest when we're talking about your health care. And um, we had a situation. Um, <clears throat> I can't remember the name of the baby. They had a young kid that uh, Elfie, it was baby Elfie in the UK, had some sort of uh, 
childhood disease. He was a, a, a very young child. He was on life support, and um, he w- the British Health Service was getting ready. Alfie Evans was his name. Uh, you can look it up on the Internet. The, the British Health System was getting ready to pull life support on this young child. And the family did not want this child to be taken off life support. And there were doctors in Italy who were willing to transport this patient and treat this patient. Um, And the British government refused to allow it to happen. And I remember posting this on social media and people were coming at me saying, you don't know about this disease. You don't know what you're talking about. And I thought to myself, you're right. I don't know either. And you don't. But I do know one thing. I know there's a patient that needs medical care. The parents of this very young patient want that medical care. There are doctors out there willing to administer that medical care. And the government of Britain is telling everyone no. If that doesn't chill your blood, I don't know what will. How does anybody know the unique circumstances of that uh, situation? And that is why I am just so committed to helping people to understand that a one-size-fits-all, government-run, socialized medicine system is not in our best interest. And after this COVID experience, it's not only not in our best self-interest or our own self-interest, it's worse than I thought. Now, let's take COVID as an example of um, how government is not looking out for us. Now, we came under attack by a virus last year. It started becoming uh, apparent, I would say, in January. In February, it was definitely here. And I've been following, as all of my listeners know, I've been following the COVID outbreak very, very closely as a very educated person. And often I'll talk to uh, people about it that I feel like I have a very unique perspective because I'm educated on medicine. I know coronavirus. I understand epidemiology. I understand um, pharmacology. I'm a business owner, so I understand business. Um, I've been involved in politics, and so I have an understanding of the political world. I've been in hospital systems, so I understand the inner workings of the hospital systems, and I had access to patients, both in hospital systems, in my clinics, in my own surgery center, and I had numbers that were available to me because I'm a practicing physician in a big city. And all of that perspective allowed me to really evaluate what was happening in real time and to see it as clearly as I could see anything in my life. And let's just start out with when the coronavirus first came around, the news kept reporting it to us as the novel coronavirus. And I kept saying to myself, why do they keep saying novel coronavirus? Now, in my opinion, the reason they were saying novel coronavirus was because they were trying to make it sound scary. Because on the heels of calling it the novel coronavirus from China, um, we saw the uh, initially because people didn't want there to be lockdowns, p- politicians, uh, they the World Health Organization tweeted out that there was no human to human transfer. And I remember at the time thinking to myself, coronavirus commonly has human to human transfer. I mean, the family of coronavirus, why would if this is supposedly a novel coronavirus, meaning one we don't know about, why would you go out and say that there doesn't there's no human to human transfer? It's it's 
I, I remember thinking it was a very irresponsible thing to do. Right on the heels of that, we had the Royal College of London predict a 3.4% mortality based on uh, data that we were getting from Italy and North Korea and other places. And they were just using numbers of the patients that were actually in the hospital to come up with this 3.4%, ignoring the fact that we know there were people who were uh, infected with coronavirus who were not in the hospital or who were mildly ill that would have brought that 3.4% number way, way down. I mean, this was just obvious to anybody with any sort of medical knowledge. And I remember when they reported it on the news, I looked to my wife and I said, what are they doing? They're going to freak everybody out uh, telling us there's a 3.4% mortality. And now, in my opinion, looking back on it, uh, this was the point. They wanted to freak us out. And um, that number eventually got revised months later down to uh, 0.13%, more akin to flu viruses and other things that we've seen before. But they never really talked about it. When I say they, I mean the media, the politicians, uh, the people who control our information flow. All of this 3.4% mortality eventually led to the implementation of lockdowns. So 15 days to flatten the curve. We all remember this, which is now turned into, I don't know what day this is now, but it's, you know, a year later and we're still not fully open. Uh, we have plenty of data out there to show that our school age children are safe and yet many of them are not fully back to school yet. They're still not um, engaged in all of their activities. Um, we have um, our jobs, our businesses are locked down and shut down in many cases. And there's absolutely no science for this. I'm sorry, none. There's no data to suggest that lockdowns are effective at uh, limiting the spread of influenza-like illnesses or coronavirus. There's certainly no evidence that masks are effective. If you look at any data before 2020, uh, we would have laughed at the way we're using masks, cloth masks and paper masks and really anything that covers your face. And now all of a sudden it's a hate crime if we're not wearing a mask. And because people like me were following these numbers, uh, I started sharing information, as did other doctors, about, wait a second, this coronavirus is uh, something that is not so novel. We do have information about that. And as I was counting the numbers up in the mortality of uh, the patients that were in Italy and North Korea, it became obvious very early on that the people who were affected by this disease were primarily patients in their 70s and 80s with comorbid conditions, and that younger people were, were relatively safe with this disease. And I thought to myself, why are they not sharing this fabulous information? And in my opinion, it was all political, um, but it doesn't matter. The point is, it's what they were able to do because government has so much control over our healthcare system. Now, people like me were starting to evaluate available literature. So I wanted to know what are my options. I had a large medical practice. I'm dealing with patients. I have a family I want to protect. I have myself I want to protect. So I started researching and it became clear that there was a lot of uh, literature and evidence that hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, zinc, and other uh, other simple early treatments were effective at 
stopping COVID. Now, this is not my own research, meaning I didn't conduct the studies. I was just reading papers and articles that were out there, and I would turn on the news, and they're telling me that uh, there's no you know, there's no treatment, that we have a 3.4% mortality. All of the data they give me is always based on treating people that were the sickest of the sick, and they were literally ignoring early treatment. And it became obvious to me, why do you guys keep presenting me with late um, treatment? So basically, the only information they were giving us was what happens to patients who are already very sick and either nearly ventilator dependent or, or you know, close to being ventilator dependent. They never talked about what do you do when somebody's mildly symptomatic or even asymptomatic and they're given hydroxychloroquine or zinc or ivermectin. I mean, we have a medicine, hydroxychloroquine, that's been FDA approved for 65 years. One of the safest profiles of any medicine ever. And no discussion of it. I'm not allowed to talk about it. Um, it got to the point now where people like me were talking about it that all of a sudden these studies in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet came out that suggested that hydroxychloroquine was not only ineffective at treating COVID, but that it was dangerous, that it was causing cardiac deaths. Now, I'm looking at that and I'm going to myself, I've been studying this now for two months, reading article after article and this is just a flat-out lie. And I thought to myself, the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet, the number one and two medical journals on the face of the earth, I don't know how this is happening, but it's not true. I knew it wasn't true. Now, on the heels of these journal articles, New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet, the FDA repealed its emergency youth author- its emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine. It's a fact that when uh, President Trump suggested that hydroxychloroquine may be an effective treatment for COVID, that the Gilead stock uh, for rendesmavir dropped by $21 billion. These are a fact. I mean, I'm not saying to you anything other than that happened. Um, And then we get these studies that come out. Now, the studies were so unbelievable that uh, people like me and others were pointing out how unbelievable they were, and we demanded to see the data. Not me personally, but other doctors demanded to see the data. I was, of course, following closely. Mind you, the FDA had already essentially banned the use of hydroxychloroquine. Hospital systems in all of the large cities around the country that are largely funded by Medicare and Medicaid, and therefore government, so government dollars are supporting these hospital systems, they all discouraged the use of hydroxychloroquine, or in many cases, flat out banned the use of hydroxychloroquine. Now, I can't even begin to explain to you just how dangerous this has been and continues to be that we have politics and politicians interfering in the ability of trained physicians to evaluate data, to discuss data, to discuss treatment options, to discuss their experiences. This was essentially banned. And on the backs of the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet articles, which two weeks later were repealed, repealed. And the reason they were repealed was because the data was fake. It wasn't that it was poor data. I've talked about it on this show a number of times, and I just cannot stress how monumentally important this is. This data was not poor data. It wasn't uh, interpreted in, a, in an erroneous way. It was fake, made-up data. They lied. Now, 
I'm telling you, as somebody who's been in medicine for almost 30 years, um, it is not possible for fake data like that on a scale like that to get through the peer review process of prestigious journals like the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet by accident. I'm sorry, it's just not possible. Uh, Now, I was just talking to a doctor the other day when I was in the hospital uh, getting ready to do an on-call patient surgery, and this this anesthesiologist was telling me about uh, taking um, the vaccine and asked me if I was going to take it. And I said, you know, it's a new vaccine. Vaccines commonly have problems early on. It takes five to ten years to know what all of those are going to be. And I just don't see the point in taking a vaccine for a disease that I have almost no chance of dying from. And um, we started discussing it, and I said to him, were you aware that the New England Journal of Medicine and Lancet published fake studies on hydroxychloroquine in April and May? And he said, no, I was completely unaware of that, and he didn't believe me. So I pulled them up on my phone, and I showed it to him, and he was stunned. And I remember thinking to myself, this guy is a practicing doctor at a major metropolitan hospital, and he's completely unaware of what I think is one of the biggest scandals in the history of medicine during my career. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable. Now, there were doctors that tried to share available information about COVID, about hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, zinc, other things that went to Washington, D.C., to to simply share information that was readily available to anybody who knew where to look. Now, most people are not doctors, and so, you know, you wouldn't know where to look about medicines or, you, you know, you don't even really have any perspective to understand it. But doctors who did have an opinion, and that's what it was, an opinion mine included, that early treatment with hydroxychloroquine and zinc was effective and that the mortality was low, as according to the CDC's own numbers, they they let you know when it, they thought it was 3.4%. But when it got down to be 0.013%, they didn't share that information so much. I thought that was odd in and of itself. And um, anyway, you had these doctors, America's frontline doctors, who were out there sharing this information, and they had 18 million live Facebook followers. Now, the thing that's important about that is you had doctors who were looking at available medical information. This is not stuff they concocted on their own or or their own research that they were peddling. They were simply taking data that had been out there for many, many years and talking about a medicine that's been FDA approved for 65 years, one of the safest medicines available. Chances are if you had school-aged children that did a mission trip to a malaria zone, they probably took hydroxychloroquine as prophylaxis for malaria. And we never heard anything about how deadly the medicine was or how dangerous it was ever. And then all of a sudden, talking about this medicine became a crime. And with these 18 million live Facebook followers, Facebook, Twitter, Google, all um, censored the information. They were completely shut down. Any sharing of this information was banned and blocked. The doctors were marginalized and referred to as known spreaders of misinformation. Now, I ask you, has anybody heard any mainstream media personality or any politician refer to the New England Journal of Medicine or the Lancet as known purveyors of fake information? I mean, they published fake studies that were retracted two weeks later when they got caught. 
I don't hear anybody doing that. And that in and of itself makes me say, what is going on here? Why do I not trust what's happening? And listen, you don't have to believe my my interpretation of the facts that, you know, because the stock of Gilead dropped by $21 billion when hydroxychloroquine became popular, uh, you don't have to believe me that uh, the company Gilead uh, – makes a ton of money off of a competing drug for hydroxychloroquine called rendesmavir, which, by the way, has no research to back it up. Uh, It's got one dubious study that suggests a slightly decreased hospital stay, but no change in mortality. That medicine is being used left and right, bought up by the government. uh, But we're not allowed to talk about hydroxychloroquine. And I'm asking myself, what is going on here uh, that, that makes it a hate crime to basically bring this up. Now, we also know that we started transitioning from talking about mortality early on to cases. And it was a very subtle way of talking about COVID where they started talking about cases and a case became anybody who had a positive test. Well, if you test positive for COVID, but you're not sick. That's not a case. You're not a case if you're not sick, even if you test positive. I mean, our bodies are subjected to viral infections all the time that our immune systems fight off. And we don't go running to the doctor or quarantine ourselves or anything like that. And we don't call it a case. But somehow in the age of COVID in 2020, any positive test is a case, despite the fact that people like me and others have reported the CDC's admission of false positive tests. Um, I, many of you may not be familiar with the PCR test. It stands for polymerase chain reaction, but it's it's a way of if you have a little strand of nucleic acid, you know, you can't see that one little strand. So what we do is we put it in a PCR machine that grows that strand into a lot of strands, and that allows us to basically see that in a procedure called a gel electrophoresis. And A PCR test is basically a method of using an enzyme called um, reverse transcriptase to create multiple strands of uh, a DNA or RNA particle. So it was never intended to be used for diagnosis of viral illness. This somehow just became, if you get this PCR test and it's positive, that you somehow are a case. And it's just simply not true. The person who invented the PCR test, Dr. Kerry Mullis has said over and over again that PCR is not designed to diagnose these these tests. So we also had Johns Hopkins University come out uh, in January with a compilation of data from the CDC that looked at the number of deaths Uh, in 2020 compared to other years, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, what they found was no dramatic increase in deaths. And oddly, what they also found was that deaths from things other than COVID went down dramatically with no explanation. So like cardiac disease and cancer and stroke and other things, those seem to fall off. But COVID and flu, of course, influenza doesn't exist anymore, but COVID deaths uh, were, were elevated. Now, um, you don't have to, we don't have to agree on the reasons for this. What I just need you to see is 
that the government had the ability to control our response and is still controlling our response uh, in ways that are not scientific and not in our own best interest. And that when doctors try to offer rational interpretation of available data and offer different treatment options, we're censored. And that is something that is very, very wrong with our system right now. My practice has been open the entire time, no mask mandates. Um, We've been doing hand washing and things that I normally do. Uh, We haven't had a single death or a single hospital admission. Now, we've had people test positive. We have people got sick, even people that were in the high-risk category. And I treated them all with hydroxychloroquine and zinc, and all of them have gotten better. But for some reason, if I go out and I talk about this, I'm censored or marginalized or, you know, told that I'm a purveyor of misinformation. But we never talk about the New England Journal of Medicine or the Lancet as being purveyors of uh, misinformation. Now we're seeing articles where the CDC uh, admits that the numbers have been inflated on COVID by as much as 1,600%. We know for a fact that the AMA which governs our coding system that affects our Medicare and Medicaid in our hospital systems, artificially inflated reimbursement for COVID diagnosis with very low threshold for diagnosis. So you don't even need a positive test. Uh, You just have to have a suspicion of COVID. And by the way, if the hospital diagnoses COVID, you're going to get reimbursed at 100% of your bill with no questions asked. And we wonder why we have this massive increase in our COVID diagnosis. We know these things happened. And the point I'm trying to make is that when we cede control of our health care to the government, they behave in ways that are not in our best interest. And we saw it with the management and the ongoing management of COVID right now. Our schools are still shut down. Our businesses are still shut down. And we're still um, subjected to these mask mandates. Now, My admonition here is we must continue to fight for free market health care. Doctors must be allowed free speech. There should always be open discussion of medical options, the science. We need to understand that scientific research is always biased. There's no such thing as unbiased research. We conduct studies to try and reduce that bias by you know, creating blinded studies where the patient and the doctor don't know who's treating. That's called double blinded. We try to do it randomized so that we use uh, a random selection of patients so that we don't intru- we reduce bias. Um, we do prospective studies as much as possible and try to rely less on retrospective. Not that you can't get information from all these different studies, but they have bias. And so anyone who tries to ever tell you that the science is settled or that the science isn't worth looking at is not acting scientifically or or in your best interest. So we're going to pick this up more next time on the Doctor's Lounge. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and you're listening to me on America's Web Radio. Everybody have a great day. We'll see you next time. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.